0: I go to the doctor once a year and healthcare reform mandated that all preventative visits, so my annual checkup is going to be covered at 100%. So even though I'm on a high deductible health plan, I don't have to pay anything for my doctor visit. So from an employer perspective, making sure you have that available for your healthy folks to be able to, you know, I want to pay a lower premium because if God forbid I get diagnosed with cancer again, I know I'm going to have a set out of pocket maximum to cover all my treatments. Right. Right but there's a lot of employees that $3000 or $5000 that just seems too daunting and if i know if i have little kids and i'm going to the doctor every other week those set copays of $25 for the doctor visit or $50 for the urgent care visit that that feels a lot more comfortable to me and i'm willing to pay a little bit more out of my paycheck to have that comfort of, of that PPO type plan or that copay plan you know whether it's PPO or HMO Hello, everyone. My name is
1: Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it'd mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm pumped to have TJ Hutchings with me today, who's a friend of mine here in Fort Worth and a partner at Higginbotham, focusing on health insurance. While health insurance can often be something that we don't talk about often, it is the second or third uh, largest expense on most businesses P&L and so today's a deep dive into what health insurance is and how we can as business owners and business people make smarter decisions for our businesses and our teams. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right TJ welcome to the show.
0: Chris, I appreciate you having me.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. So listeners, TJ and I have become uh, really good buddies over the last five years, and we've had lunch together and just chatted about lots of things. And one of the things that we're gonna talk about today is the health insurance industry. If there was anybody that could make this uh, one of the most exciting things we listen to—it's TJ—and my goal today with you is to learn what it is and how small businesses and business owners in general can think about it. So, before we get into all that, let's talk about who you are, where you came from, and some of your story that led you to today.
0: Now, absolutely, from Oklahoma City, been in Fort Worth now ten years. Been at Higginbotham, which is a insurance agency based here in Fort Worth. It's one of those things that. You ask 10 insurance agents, how they get into the business? 9.9 9 of them are going to say, have no idea, or <laughs> I just fell into it. And so it's one of those things, I was one of those 9.9. 9. I mean, yeah. I had no idea. I, I was mowing lawns in school. I uh, come from a single parent home. And it's one of those things that I, I just, I didn't know really what I wanted out of life. And so I, I was in a fraternity at OU and ended up working for the national fraternity uh, as a leadership consultant. End up, they sent me to TCU. I started our chapter at TCU. Met the gentleman there who introduced me to Jim Hubbard, who he and Michael Park started our employee benefit division at Higginbotham like 32 years ago. Yeah, I tell him my story about growing up. I was again single parent home, but you know when I was 17, I was diagnosed with cancer, and so one of the things prior to that, though, my mom always said, "Hey, no matter what you do in life, just make sure you have good health insurance." And it was you know at that time at 17, I was like, I. That's great and all. But when I got diagnosed, it was absolutely critical for us because we didn't have funds to front the treatments or anything like that. But she had great coverage through her employer. And, you know, going through that experience, obviously, we had good coverage, but we also had a really great advocate on our side um, because I had been misdiagnosed for a couple of years. And at that point, you know, I needed some they suggested a research drug, which at the time insurance companies, you know, they weren't gonna cover it. But our advocate that was working with my mom's company, he continued to file appeals. After like the fourth appeal, it got covered. And so not not to say that it saved my life, but it definitely, I think it played a big role in a research, but then B potentially my recovery. So, you know, through that, I I definitely, when I got approached to work in health insurance, that was the number one thing that stuck out was this guy that really, you know, he took the time to look at me as just an individual and want to put in the effort to hopefully get me a treatment that could potentially save my life. And I thought, you know, if that's something I can do for people, then absolutely. And then on, you know, I I went to school for business at the Price College of Business at OU and that, you know, the aspect of business and to think that I can have an influence on business or small businesses in a community on a second or third largest line item on their balance sheet at Twenty-eight, you know, thirty years old, absolutely. So I could kind of mirror, you know, marry those two together, and uh, yeah, now I'm ten years in, and it's it's just been an incredible ride because I think it's again shares my passion of just serving people, but then helping businesses as well. So you, the fourth appeal goes through.
1: What happens to people when that fourth appeal doesn't go through and like nothing happens? Like, what are you left with if that? actually doesn't materialize into something positive, like a company that's willing to take on your situation.
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of different foundations out there that yeah. you can, you can apply to. And that was going to be, you know, he had lined up, Hey, if this doesn't work, we can apply it to X, Y, Z foundation. And especially given the cancer experience and pediatric cancer, I mean, we were going to go through and vet every, everything out there. And so You know, that's always my suggestion for my clients is if we vet out everything, we need to be going, whether it's government funds or any nonprofit foundations out there that can supplement the treatment, especially if it's research based. Yeah. All right. So you're at TCU, you're you're opening up the fraternity.
1: You meet the guys at Higginbotham. Just we chatted about this at lunch, but what's the story about like you getting the job? And then I want to brag on you a little bit about what you've done in year one to year 10, because you're now a behemoth, uh, a growing behemoth in the industry. And so let's just talk about that journey for a bit.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh yeah, I get introduced to Jim and we have a great conversation. Uh, and it was more just we just sit down and he just asked me about my story and I, you know, outlined it for him. And, you know, six months go by and I come, I was gonna get married. On a Saturday in April. My contract (laughs) with the fraternity was up in May, and I still didn't have a job. I still had equipment to go mow, but my wife was like, You're not going to go mow lawns. And so I called Jim up and I was like, Hey, this is a Monday. I'm going to get married on Saturday. I think I'm going to provide a lot of value for your company. I don't know where that's going to be, but I just want an opportunity. He said, Well, come in on, on Wednesday. And so I get there, and we have seven board members that make up Higginbotham, and five of the seven were at the table. And we literally just sit and talk about this. So at Higginbotham, we don't wear ties a lot, Yeah. but a guy had a bow tie on. So I thought that was (laughs) kind of interesting. And so we were talking about a bow tie for the first 30 minutes. And I knew right then and there, no matter if they asked me to sweep the floors or change the light bulbs, I need to be there. And so we had a great conversation. I leave 30 minutes later and they just said, hey, we don't know what you're going to do, but we want you here. And that's all I needed. My wife, she kind of thought a little different, but uh, I told her, I said, give me three years. If at the end of that third year, if I'm not where we need to be or on my way to where we need to be, we'll figure something else out. And so, yeah, it's, it's been good, good ride. So you made it through the first three years. Made it for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. Okay.
1: Let's just talk about your role. Like, what do you do for a living? Like, how do you think about what you do for a living?
0: you know, at at a very high level, just a consultant for businesses, whether that's you have five employees up through, you know, my largest client has about 3,200. Um, so, but Higginbotham's real niche is 25 to about 500 employees. Okay. And so what we do is we broker the insurance, you know, the, the medical dental vision, life disability, whatever you're going to be offering your employees, we go and find the best coverage and rates for that coverage. But that's, we call it that day one. And then day two is what are we doing the next 364 days? So Obviously, with healthcare reform, there's a lot of compliance issues that come up. We take care of all that, uh, make sure you're in line and, and following the rules there. In case you ever get an audit, you're not going to have to have you know any fines or anything come up. But then too, it's more on the the personal side of really being a back office HR team for your you know for a lot of those employers, you have an individual doing payroll, you know, their HR as well, and they're also doing maybe work comp, and they have several different hats. Our goal is to really remove the benefits piece off their plate and completely handle that for them. And so when they think anything insurance related from a health or dental or vision or anything, you just think of Higginbotham and, and our team to really, again, advocate for any of those issues that come up. Really, it's looking at it from a strategic perspective. You know, a lot of employers, unfortunately, look, you know, just kind of year to year to year. Our goal is really to broaden it out and say, okay, like, where do we want to be three years from now? Where do we want to be five years from now? How can we help and if, I hate using this term now due to this last year, but like, how do we bend the curve of, you know, this rising cost in healthcare? You know, yeah. we, it's not going away, but if what are we doing proactively to help you as an organization provide great value and, you know, wonderful coverage for your uh, for your employees at hopefully the lowest possible cost year over year over year? All right. So maybe we can break this up into
1: everything that goes into getting to day one. And then maybe everything that goes into the next 365 days. So let's just put, I'm going to put my kind of small business hat on. Uh, There's so many questions I could ask here. Because I think where a lot of people come from is like you just said, it's like, it just seems like costs always rise. It seems like plans are all the same. It seems like more than anything, it's really confusing to understand what you're even getting. So... Maybe let's just start off with like, what are the things that small business owners and business owners in general should be asking when they're at the table with you?
0: Absolutely. And if we can like broaden it. So let's define markets. Okay. Because that's one thing we, do that. we we need to do because, uh, you know, from a market of two to 50 would be considered a small market. Okay. And a small group market. And then 50 to 150 would be middle market. And then we could just say 150 plus would be larger market. Okay. So, Within those specific segments, um, specifically the two to 50 on the small market, healthcare reform mandated that all what's called a fully insured plan, meaning you have a set premium, you just pay the premium and you, you know, there's no more liability than your set rates. So that's all based on adjusted community rates. There's no, we can't negotiate those rates whatsoever. So if you have your 25 employees, I go to Blue Cross for a fully insured rate. It's going to be, no matter if you're 25 employees at Fort Capital or ABC Plumbing, if they're all the same age and all in the same zip code, it's going to be the exact same rates, okay. right? So And who sets those? TDI, which is Texas Department of Insurance. Okay. And so Blue Cross has to file those rates with TDI on an annual basis, and they get approved, accepted, and that there's a negotiation there on between Blue Cross and TDI okay. on an annual basis. but. So I'd say from a business owner perspective is obviously you're going to get those. You you need fully insured rates just to compare. But a company like y'all, younger population, potentially more healthy population, there's a lot of these plans that are called level funded, meaning the insurance company is going to underwrite, medically underwrite your company based on the health and demographic of your company of 25 instead of just going into these adjusted community rates. And so you're, hopefully theoretically should get a lot better rates going through a level-funded type plan. And what that means from a liability perspective is it's no different if the contract is set up right and that's where you need hopefully an agent that knows the contracts behind everything. But I would say definitely for sure you want to see some level-funded plans from reputable carriers uh, out there. And I think the carriers knew and understand these adjusted community rates are just going to go year over year. Because if you have the same set of employees, you know, if they age up because they're all based on an age bracket, every year your rates are going to go up no matter what because there's an age bracket there. So looking at a level funded plan, you're going to have more consistency from hopefully better renewals and because it's based on what's going on from a health perspective within the company. For that middle market, everything is negotiated. So 50 plus, we're able to negotiate rates and get a lot more competitive from you know, a health perspective for sure. And so again, it, it goes back to, how healthy is our population from our perspective is what are we doing proactively to reduce claims? What are we doing to help you and your employees make better decisions when it comes to their health? And then hopefully all the things we're doing again, that 364 days a year are going to give you a better renewal at the end of the day.
1: So like on the 50 to 150, and I'm assuming that's kind of the same for 150 yeah. plus Yep. since two to 50 are, it's kind of like, it is what it is. What are the things that you can negotiate on the 50 and above? Like, what are the variables that a small business owner might be thinking? And maybe the question is, what can you negotiate? But like, what can
0: employees be doing to help better rates? I think from an employer perspective is what tools are you giving your employees to to make better decisions? And so so it, like, what would a tool be? So there's a a tool out there called Healthcare Blue Book. OK, so we think of like when you're going to buy a car, right, you're going to hopefully know the value of the car that you're trying to buy and you can do your own negotiation within that. Right. So the same thing, the same concept of that is, okay, if I need a, a shoulder surgery, I can type that in and it's going to give me a listing of all the providers that will do that so- shoulder surgery within my area and a cost associated with that. So uh, whether that's, you know, $10,000 up through $50,000. And so, you know, from, From your perspective, it's, okay, what can I do to incentivize my employees to make a better cost decision on that service, essentially? Okay. And so what we help employers do is when when they make a better decision, it's, okay, we're going to cut their deductible or going to say, okay, since you went to the lower cost surgery, we're going to pay for that service for you, essentially. Because from a claims perspective, obviously, we want our employees to be making better decisions to have lower cost of services. Um, And so if they have that tool to be able to make that decision, I mean, that's, that's key in in our eyes because otherwise if a doctor says go down to this hospital and they just say, okay, let's do it. They don't, no one really knows unless you're really digging in and asking how much those services cost. What about things like, like a weight loss competition or something? (laughs) Do those actually help you out or is that a myth? I mean, from a, you know, from a wellness perspective, we'll tell the carrier, okay, we're doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But if it's not represented in in the claims, it's not, you know, it's really not going to matter. At the end how, of the day. how would like a weight loss competition be uh, represented in the claims? I mean, if there's still, you know, significant claims going on, it's not going to be represented. Right. You know, and I mean, and from, from hopefully you're catching people with if they have high blood pressure and they're they're actively working to get that down so they don't have a heart attack is what you're hoping to catch. Or you know, doing more of those wellness type activities. Got it. Um, but from a from that negotiation of having, if I can tell Blue Cross, hey, you know, Fort Capital here had they have they had several wellness activities and weight loss competition. At the end of the day, if you still had high claims because you had six folks with cancer or you have people just utilizing the coverage extremely, you know, at a high rate. It doesn't matter what programs you have in place if the claims are still there and versus the premiums you're paying in yeah. then it really doesn't matter at the end of the day at what size do you start thinking about self insuring in the past it was about 250 employees okay. um but now again like a level funded plan I was talking about earlier that's essentially a self insured contract okay and so even though your liability is at the end of the day no more than what a fully insured contract would be right it's still written on a self funded contract and so we're seeing a lot more of the underwriters coming down to 100 employees, 75. Um, and then we're seeing a lot of captives in the market, meaning a captive is a group of employers, hopefully like-minded employers that know, okay, there's gotta be something different about, we have to do something different to make this sustainable. Um, so we're gonna put in you know, transparency tools. We're gonna put in wellness programs. We're gonna do everything we can from a proactive perspective and we're gonna pull our stop loss. So the okay. stop loss is, on a self-funded contract, you're going to have, you're going to have an individual stop-loss meaning, Chris, if you, if if our individual stop-loss is $50,000, we're going to self-fund every claim up to that $50,000. And then the stop-loss kicks in and and pays for everything north of that 50. And so what that captive is, is a group of employers that all have a, their own specific stop-loss, and they're going to self-fund up to that point. And then the group captive stop loss kicks in anything of those kind of catastrophic top claims. so if you have two hundred and fifty employees at a fifty thousand dollars stop loss per
1: employee, my math might be a little off. your total let's just assume every employee went you have a twelve and a half million dollar i mean, but the odds are that like nobody well, what are i mean what's the incentive for the employee not to use their insurance?
0: Well, just to go back to your math real quick. Yeah. So there's going to be an aggregate stop loss as well okay. to a cell phone and contract. So you're not going to have a $12.5 million spend, mm. right? There's going to be a a layer over the entire group from an aggregate perspective. So you're only going to have a max depending on wherever that level's set. Got it. So, um, but on average, we see maybe 3% of folks hit a $5,000 deductible every year. Yeah. And so to have those $50,000 kind of catastrophic claims, those, Just don't just don't happen unless something's very significant is going on. And that five thousand is just like, you know,
1: check up here. Maybe I, you know, got some stitches like nothing is being covered by insurance. When you said that three percent of people go to five thousand, that's cash out of
0: pocket. None of that
1: is being reimbursed by insurance.
0: Yeah, it it, it would depend depend on like the plan design of the plan. So like with a um, high deductible health plan, meaning one that doesn't have any copays whatsoever Then yes, like you're essentially paying out of pocket up to your your deductible, and then there may be a co-insurance meaning I'm paying twenty percent, insurance is paying eighty until my out of pocket maximum, which is an out when you see an out of pocket maximum on your plan, that's the total I'm going to spend in it in a annual year, and anything north of that, the insurance is covering hundred percent of. Okay, so going
1: back real quick to two to fifty
0: people, Mm -hmm. so.
1: If me Chris I'm super healthy I never I'm, I'm an employee I never use my health insurance I'm not going to get like a better rate cuz it it doesn't really matter it's all per the group so no matter how great I'm doing it isn't helping my individual situation it's it's all based on kind of the group plan absolutely okay yep so I just don't need to be healthy then. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Why is it state by state? I remember uh, this was something on President Trump's agenda. It was just like, why can't states compete with each other for better rates? Do you know
0: why Like everything has been kind of walled to where you can only compete within your state? I mean, I think it's all driven, you know, again, when I reference TDI, so Texas Department of Insurance, and and the laws and regulations are all set by the government. And so it's And it varies between... You, you know, each, each state from the regulatory aspects from the, the, you know, the state laws of, of insurance. And so I think there's just, there would just be too much confusion going into, you know, how, and comparing each state of how we can have competition there. I just think it would be extremely cumbersome. It's all driven from the state and local governments there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm going to ask
1: you a big question later, but just around like why we're the most expensive healthcare in the world, even though that we're the most prosperous country in the world, but we can get to that in a bit. All right. So we're sitting down, we're figuring out what type of insurance we should get, kind of smaller business. I know we've kind of broken it into two to 50 and 50 to 150.
0: What are the types of plans and what do they mean? Yeah. So types of plans you're going to see a PPO, so preferred provider organization, meaning your employees are going to have a broad range of providers to choose from. Um, And then you're going to have HMO options. And what an HMO is, is essentially you're going to have to have a specific primary care physician selected. And so if, if you need to go see a specialist, you have to go see that primary care physician to get a referral to see the specialist. And oftentimes those HMO networks are going to be a lot more narrow or skinny, as they say. So you're not going to have just a big, broad range of providers to choose from. Um, and then you're going to have an HSA or a high deductible health plan. So a high deductible health plan that you partner with the HSA is one that just doesn't have any copays. Both the PPO and the HMO both have copays for your doctor visits, your specialist visits. Oftentimes your ER and urgent care facility visits, you're going to have a set copay. No matter where you go, it's going to be that copay. Whereas a high deductible health plan is going to have Just, it's going to be the negotiated contracted amount between that provider and your insurance company. So, for example, I had to take my son to uh, Cook Children's, you know, urgent care just two weeks ago. I get the explanation of benefits, it was $125. Whereas on a PPO plan, that might be $50 or $75. But with a high deductible health plan, the, the key to that is you're able to contribute pre-tax dollars into a savings account year over year, over year. You never lose that money, no matter if you switch employers or not. It's just a separate savings account that oftentimes employers contribute to. But you have a here in 2021, an annual contribution limit of 3600 for if you're an individual or if you have spouse, children, or family coverage, you can contribute up to 7200 So the goal is there is, you know, like for us, I told my wife, hey, before we have kids, let's contribute enough where we're going to pay pre-tax dollars for the birth of our kids, right? So we're going to save up enough. And then when we have our pregnancy, we're going to go through and pay everything with pre-tax dollars. Well, over time, you can use those pre-tax dollars and put them in investments and invest invest that money as well, depending on the HSA vendor. Uh, But most HSA, reputable HSA vendors allow you to do investments on, on those dollars. So a lot of folks use it as just another retirement tool of I can put in pre-tax money and, you know, at some point I may need that for medical usage and you can, you know, use it for medical, dental, vision, anything that's pertaining to health, you can use those HSA dollars on. Those are typically like the the big three plans that you can have to choose from. It's just, and then there's specific plan designs depending on what you want to offer your employees. Obviously the higher the deductible for the employees, the more they're going to contribute, the lower the premium is. We we put in place what's called a health reimbursement account. So, meaning a if you have like a five thousand dollar deductible with the insurance company and you're paying the lower premiums, but you say, hey, I don't want my employees paying that full five thousand. It's essentially saying if we set that number at two thousand, they're going to pay the first two thousand. If they go to five, then we're going to reimburse them for that three. Interesting. Yeah. So it's just a way of self-insuring a fully insured plan, right? You're just self-insuring that deductible should an employee hit a $5,000 deductible.
1: All right. Let's just go through some basic terminology. What is copay?
0: Yeah. It's just a flat dollar amount. Let's say you have a prescription drug and you have a generic and it's a $10 copay. For every generic drug, you're just paying $10 for that. Uh, For a primary care physician office visit, $25. So if you need to go see the doctor just a $25. And it's going to be the same across the board, depending on that specific position or service. And what's a deductible? So it's going to be the, the larger amount. So for your surgeries or your major imaging, it's going to be those first do- the first dollar amount you're paying until there's a coinsurance, uh, which is the, the insurance share until you hit your out-of-pocket maximum. And what is a premium? What you're paying, whether you and your employer combine, if you're, if you're just getting single coverage, it's the premium you're paying, the dollars you're paying just to have insurance. Um, and typically, the, the bare minimum an employer can pay is 50% of the employee only premium uh, to have a group level plan. And that's set by the insurance company. You may or may not know this,
1: but why in America is it? on your employer to cover health insurance instead of just the individual?
0: Yeah, you know, I think traditionally, uh, and this, uh, you know, predates me, obviously, but it it's a way to attract and retain employees, right? It's okay. what else am I getting if I'm offering a set r- wage here, but my benefits are really good. Hopefully my, the person I'm, you know, looking to recruit and to hire is going to know and understand, wow, their insurance is a lot more low here than, somebody paying 50 cents or a dollar more especially on those hourly top workers and that's something that we have to really educate our clients on especially in you know the oil and gas field or any anywhere that's having those hourly workers it's how are we communicating the value of our benefits and what we're paying for those benefits right. because from, you know, our perspective is if, if we're setting, you know, a flat rate from a wage perspective, but we're have a large employer contribution, do those employees really know and value that? And so, um, yeah, I mean, at the, you know, at a high level, I think it is, it's, it's really those employee benefits of what are we, are we using this truly as a tool to attract and retain employees? All right. So you, we went through the first three or we went through the different types
1: how like are there certain types of like? How do you make the decision on which one to pick? Yeah, because I mean, you could you could say they all have their benefits, but like,
0: what type of companies fit in each bucket? Yeah, absolutely. I always challenge my groups to have a dual option, right? Okay. Because whether a PPO or and, and in a high deductible health plan that doesn't have any copays, and and reason being is you know somebody like me and my family, yeah. I'm real, I'm I'm healthy now, you know and Uh, God willing, that stays that way. But I go to the doctor once a year and healthcare reform mandated that all preventative visits, so my annual checkup is going to be covered at 100%. So even though I'm on a high deductible health plan, I don't have to pay anything for my doctor visit. So from an employer perspective, making sure you have that available for your healthy folks to be able to, you know, I want to pay a lower premium because if God forbid I get diagnosed with cancer again, I know I'm going to have a set out of pocket maximum to cover all my treatments. Right. right, But there's a lot of employees that $3,000 or $5,000, that just seems too daunting. And if I know, if I have little kids and I'm going to the doctor every other week, those set co-pays of $25 for the doctor visit or $50 for the urgent care visit, that, that feels a lot more comfortable to me. And I'm willing to pay a little bit more out of my paycheck to have that comfort of, of that PPO type plan or that copay plan, you know, whether it's PPO or HMO. So, you know, I always challenge folks. You know, depending on the demographics of your company, the demograph, you know, your the co- the culture of the company of, what do you think would be a more fit? If you can just ap- offer that dual option there, it kind of gives you know people that that option to to choose one or the other. And it's through that open enrollment process. Unfortunately, we see a lot of employees. You know, they go through open enrollment, and it's that you know fifteen to eighteen minutes a year that they're making a, a really large decision. But are they really? Focusing and understanding what any of that means, yeah. we often think no, yeah. even though I'm I'm more than happy to sit and it doesn't matter how much time it takes you. Yeah, let's talk through that decision depending on your you know your specific circumstances at home or financial situation or whatever. But often again, I mean, we see it week in and week out when we do these open enrollment meetings. People are just check the box. Oh, I just don't want to make any changes and they just go on. Yeah, but it's such a large decision. I think again whatever we can provide them to make the best decision. So whether it's communication or avenues and advocates to talk to, um, but really stressing, okay, this is, yes, this is the one time of year that you need to make the decision. So talk it over with your family, make sure that you're making the best decision for you financially in your circumstances from whether it's kids and and comfort level of co-pays or whatever it may be. Why is it only one time a year? That's it's a government deal. They um, <laughs> well and and plus it's uh it helps with essentially adverse elections. So let's just say, and what that means is let's say I I don't want I I'm healthy, I don't need health insurance right now, right? Right. Well, I go through my open enrollment, first of the month begins, coverage begins. A month later, I get diagnosed with cancer. And that insurance company is essentially saying, I need a qualifying event to say, I need, I need insurance now. Right. And so unless I have a qualifying event, meaning I get laid off, I get married, I have a child, anything that's deemed by the IRS, a qualifying event, I can't get back on that coverage. Got it. So it's essentially protecting, you know, the insurance companies as well to say, we don't want only the sick people having insurance. Right. Right. So the, the healthy population are supplementing you know, the the, the more sick out, out there.
1: And just rewinding for a second, you said most employers should offer a dual option plan. So you don't have to pick just a PPO or just an HSA. You can offer both and employees yep. can pick from either.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So okay. the, the carriers dictate how many plans you can offer, but yeah. most carriers are going to be able to, you can be able to offer three. Okay. So, you know, what we see often is a base. So like a higher, a, a base PPO, meaning one with copays, but a higher deductible. And then a buy-up PPO meaning a copay with a lower deductible, and then a high deductible health plan or HSA. So kind of a triple option. But yeah, I mean, if you can even just narrow it between the two, I mean, there's you know plenty of success there as well. I just think I think the more options that you give folks, the more apt just to just be like, okay, I don't really want to make a decision, and going to spend less time on it because of that. Um, and that's been our experience. Just again, through those open enrollment meetings.
1: Okay. So, and let's just talk about that open enrollment meeting, because that's kind of a big day. Yeah. Should most employers be thinking about having their agent on site that day to talk with people, or should that be done a few days before? Uh, Should there be, because I know like, let's just take you, like you're, you're definitely meeting with who's ever running HR and making the decisions but is it is it a, a better step to also say, OK, when we're going to start rolling, let's have a professional in the office that can kind of answer questions during
0: either that time or a couple of days leading up to it? Absolutely. So we want to be there again because it's a, that extension of that team. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when when we're communicating to them and we tell them when you have issues, you know, think of us, you know, obviously you have your HR team, but we are the folks that are going to advocate for you and be able to find solutions for you? And so. Yeah, we want to be there on site uh, if possible. Obviously, you know, with COVID and everything, we did a lot of communication via Zoom or just, you know, conference call. Uh, We also put together, you know, putting together pre-recorded open enrollment meetings so somebody can take it and watch it at their leisure and then call in to a, a, you know, a call center and have us walk through any issues that they have. So I think having multiple avenues of communication because depending on... You know, if it's a lot of shift work, catching people at the end of a shift, you know, while that may sound great, if you've been working 12 hours, probably the last thing you want to do is sit down and talk about health insurance. Right. Uh-huh. And so giving them a multiple avenue of how am I getting this communication? And if I do have questions, where do I go for it? Yeah. Um, and again, it's not HR in our eyes. It's it's us who's putting in, pl- in, in the plan and we're going to administer it and be your advocate throughout the year. All right. A couple more questions
1: on this in the 22 to 50 employees and maybe the 100 the 50 and above if somebody joins my company that has a disease the kind of a lifelong thing it's a we'll call it a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. because they're kind of lumped in with the group and it's a group thing they're they can't be singled out meaning like their condition can't be like well we can insure everybody else in the company except for this person or what happens when there's people on the team with pre-existing conditions.
0: Yeah. So with healthcare reform, any pre-existing conditions, I mean, there's, they're going to be covered. Okay. Right? And so all that, like they're going to have that coverage. If you're, you know, 50 plus, or if you're on a self-funded plan, what that stop loss carrier can do at upon renewal is let's say, you know, every employee and member on that plan has a $50,000 individual stop loss, but we're going to, what's called, we're going to laser this person because we know, know, you know, if they're a dialysis patient, they're going to have two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars of claims a year. God, we're going to have a laser on him, meaning we're going to that person's going to have a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollar laser. So you, as a company, are going to be you know self funding that person up to that point. And so it's our goal, again, from a contract perspective, is to get you in a contract that has no new lasers. So upon renewal, year over year. No matter what's going on with your individuals, that won't happen to you. Yeah, as an employer, because yeah, it's it's tough when something like that happens, and you're like, well, obviously we want this person to be taken care of, and well, but how are we going to fund that? Uh, which is yeah, it's it's tough conversation to have. But again, I think if you, from an agent perspective, if you do your, if you have good relationships and do your due diligence up front, hopefully you're mitigating that as much as possible on those no new lasers yeah as an employer
1: it seems like there could be uh some bias creep come in if you're like going to hire somebody knowing that they have a pre-existing condition that you're going to have to pay a fortune for absolutely more than the the other people that's interesting i did not know that okay so folks have now picked their policy companies pick their policy let's just talk about what happens after and then i want to get into some more like Industry specific things and who are the main companies and any technology and stuff like that. So, what do y'all do once the plan has been picked when you say, you know, y'all should be coming to us with your
0: issues throughout the year? Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to continue to advocate people to take a consumerism approach to their healthcare. And so, what that means is, let's say your doctor says, Chris, you need to go have an MRI and you need to go to Baylor, Scott, and White. I think there's a, obviously a huge level of trust that we as individuals take with our doctor, but you know that doctor may not know how much that's going to cost me. And so we need to be doing everything. Again, I go back to the healthcare blue book of, okay, what tools or what communication or knowledge do I have as a consumer to find that at a lower rate if it's going to cost me less and I can get the same MRI, whether it's at Baylor Scott and White or a independent imaging center, right? Um, because that's one of the things like it may be $2,000 at Bay and Scott White or $250 at an independent imaging center. Right? right. And so I think it's one of those things, continue to reinforce that consumerism throughout the year yep. and give people the tools and examples and communication. And if they need help doing that, you know, it's there's companies out there that's just advocacy of if your doctor says you need an MRI, I call this number and they're going to navigate me to. The lowest cost facility. If that's right. my, cho- if that's my choice. So and they're calling you or they're calling the insurer? Both. I mean, okay. it's, it's, well, not the insurer. So there's third parties, yeah. um, that they can, we can put in place what, you know, quantum health would be one of them of okay. it's a, a specific av- av- advocacy for your employees to call, to navigate them to the lowest cost, highest quality provider. Got it. And that's, I mean, as an employer, hopefully that's your goal, right. Yeah. Of I want my people to be taken care of, but if we can get them saving money and then I can save money as well, that's a win-win, right? But how are they getting there and why are they getting there of, is it, you know, re-incentivizing them or is it just an intrinsic, hey, I'm, I just don't want to pay a fortune for an MRI kind of thing. Is
1: there any risk that the employer takes by selecting certain plans that the employee could hold them accountable to? No, not necessarily. I I haven't seen that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who are the main companies in the space? Uh, not just I don't know, maybe we can talk about Texas or maybe they're just nationwide. Who who are the the brand
0: names? Yeah. So we, we call them initially the BUCA, right? So Blue Cross, United, Cigna, United Healthcare, Cigna and Aetna is kind of the BUCA carriers. And so, um, and those are going to be nationwide with United Healthcare, Cigna, and Aetna. You know, if no matter if you're in Texas or Oklahoma, you're going to have relatively, it's going to be the same company. The, the sole exception would be Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So here in Texas, Blue Cross and Blue Shield is under the umbrella of HCSE, which is Healthcare Service Corporation, and that encompasses Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, uh, Montana, and Illinois. So all the the company is HCSE, and they just represent those five states. Right. So. Out in California, it'll be different than that HCSC, but they still share the blue name and blue branding and, and all of that. And so we call that again the BUCA. But then you have a lot of you can go and get options from them or a lot of third party administrators, meaning we're gonna help you find your stop loss, and then we're gonna be the main claim payer behind your company. Typically, there's gonna be with a self-insured more arrangement because. Um, the company will be the fiduciary behind the plan, a fully insured plan, you know, the blue cross will be the fiduciary, whereas on the self-funded plan, the company is gonna be the fiduciary behind it. But that third party administrators can be processing claims, helping, you know, they're gonna give you your ID card, helping with any, if there is customer service issues that we don't we don't handle from an agency perspective, if they need to intervene, then they're gonna do a lot a lot of that. But they're gonna be kind of the conduit to getting all those claims paid. Taking your premium and and facilitating all that on on with the providers. Okay. And there's, I mean, tons of tons of third parties. I mean, there's
1: numerous. Yeah. yeah. But there's like Blue Cross, there's Aetna. Aetna. Any other like kind of Cigna. Cigna. United Healthcare. That's right. Or the okay. the BUCA. The Buka. All right. Well, I'm gonna I gotta jump back real quick because I missed one thing. But when should uh, like if if enrollment date is X, when should employers start
0: thinking about next year's plan? Like how far in advance? At a minimum. I mean, we we work 120 days in advance. At a okay. pure minimum. Legally here in the state of Texas, you need to have your renewal by 60 days prior to your effective date. But again, from a planning perspective, from a really ramping up conversations, getting quotes, getting every I mean, we we're starting 120 days because you know, we want to be able to get you rates and get rates in front of you to be able to lock in a decision so we can have plenty of time, you know, 45, hopefully, you know, 45 to 60 days to be able to communicate effectively enough to your, to your team. And then two, any changes that are made, we need to be able to get that because our goal is if you have a one-one effective date and you're making any changes, you know, an ID card needs to be in the pocket of your employee if they have, you know, Uh, an emergency event come one, one. Right. Right. And if there's, if anything's in flux, obviously that brings more anxiety to that employee, you know, there's ways that we do to help facilitate that from an agent perspective. But if we're proactive enough and working far enough in advance, that, that shouldn't happen in my mind. Um, And unfortunately we see in our industry, I, this last February, I worked a renewal that again, usually takes me 120 days. I worked it in six. Do you think the kind of work that I was able to do in six days was, you know, as good as what I would have been able to do 120? No. But that agent had put that person, that that employer in a in a situation that called for a change of an agent within six days of their effective date, unfortunately. Yeah.
1: Okay. You're in one of the industries where uh, when a new administration comes in, like everything changes. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, how do you all kind of like Biden just came in? And 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 stuff maybe changes annually, or maybe it's more ri- right around the the power change. But how do you guys constantly take in like what's going to be the new rules and and learn them really quick, and then be able to kind of navigate and and educate consumers? It seems like it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And I think fortunately, you know, at Higginbotham, we have attorneys on staff that they do a lot of that for us. Okay. You know, and they they take in all the legislation that hundreds of page regulations that whoever DOL or IRS pass, they'll stem it down for us and say, okay, your market two to 50, this is what we need to know out of this, so forth and so on on that. But from an agent perspective, I mean, that's how I've grown. I mean, I started out at, right at the beginning stages of healthcare reform. And so I was, you know, 25, 26 years old and realized, okay, if if I know healthcare reform was a industry-shaping industry shape, shaping Event for all employers come insurance right. So if I can know the compliance end of healthcare reform, that kind of puts me on par with somebody that's been in the business for forty years because this is brand new to all of us. Yeah. And so when those those events do take place, again, it's my goal to know and understand that a to take care of my client. Yeah. I'm not going to just get pinned on our attorney to do that. Uh, but then b when when there's employers out there that are deficient in these areas, then that's where hopefully. They're going to see the value in what I'm bringing to the table from just a pure compliance perspective. But there's also associations out there. So uh, Nahu meaning uh, National uh, Health Underwriter Association, they do a lot to advocate for us and and get get us that type of information. And we're also a part of uh, what's called CIAB, uh, which is a just a broker National Broker Association that um, I saw through COVID. They they did a lot of. I mean, they're boots on the ground in DC and they did a lot of advocating for us, but then, you know, getting us the information as it was being passed, um, you know, from PPP to all that, because even though I deal in health insurance, my goal is for my clients to see me as just, if if I have an issue with business, whether it's, you know, health insurance or not, I want to, you know, TJ's connected to a lot of people. Hopefully he can find a solution or an answer for me. Um, no matter what it is, especially from a compliance perspective.
1: And just the dumb question of the day, is healthcare reform also known as Obamacare? Right. Okay. Yeah. It, another dumb question. Is it Obama, has it been re, like, is it still moving forward under the same uh, momentum that it started with or has it been kind of derailed a bit or have things changed
0: about it? So, yeah, the Supreme Court actually just... Um, I mean, it, it's it's still here and it's here to stay. Okay. Um, there's going to be potentially aspects of it change in the future from from what we're getting. But I don't foresee any, anything real of significance changing within the next, you know, six to 12 months okay. at, at this point in time. Uh,
1: now I'm just kind of in question mode. If I don't have health insurance, and maybe <laughs> you already answered this by the foundation's and there's a lot of America that still is not insured and I get cancer or I get in a car accident. Who's paying those bills? Does anybody know? I mean, outside of, so if you, because you, know, you can't, you can't refuse care. You can't refuse care. But then, yep. you, I mean, maybe the answer is like, they're saying, here's your million dollar bill and good luck paying it off the rest of your life.
0: I mean, but, there's, I think there's always a negotiation there of yeah. depending on your income and, you know, hopefully hospital systems aren't, taking wages away from you for, you know, but our goal is to get you set up on a payment plan. If, if, if somebody comes to me that like, what do I do? And you are an income earner and it's facilitating a negotiation there between you and that provider to find an agreement. But if that's just not going to happen, then in my mind, it's, they can, they can only write off so much, but I mean, it's, it's being supplemented somewhere, whether state or federal. Okay. And maybe this isn't your expertise. Uh, Maybe it
1: is like, why are insurance or why are health costs continuing to just like go through the roof?
0: There's a a gentleman named Dr. Bricker. He puts out some really great videos and he put out one this morning uh, and stated that hospitals on average bill 241% of what Medicare pays, right? So, Say that one more time. So hospitals, on average, okay. bill their patients 200. So bill the, the insurance companies, private insurance companies, 241% of what Medicare pays. Yeah. So Medicare prices and services are set by the federal government. So we know what Medicare is paying for, you know, an MRI, right? It's a set. Medicare is going to pay X. So what what he is saying is the studies that have been made... Is insurance companies are paying 241% more to hospitals than what Medicare is paying. There's no, there's no regulation there on what a hospital can bill an insurance company. And so my thought is if if you know, if hospitals and providers continue to bill higher and higher and higher, the insurance companies have, you know, th- yeah, they have their contracted agreements, but if it's still 241% above what the government's paying. So there's a lot of money to be made there, right? Yeah, and and that's that's not slowing down. Those bill charges are not slowing down of of what health insurance companies are paying, so they're going to have to make up for it in the premiums they're charging their 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 customers.
1: And that's why you like hear these stories of. You know, you you're in the hospital and you ask for a box of tissues and yeah. you look at the bill and it's a hundred dollar box of tissues. That's literally just like a hospital
0: being like, let's just see what we can get for this box of tissues. It's I mean, they have a they have a, a a charge master and I mean it's it's literally what they're charging for that box of tissues. It's it's on there, but again, it's we know that that rate for Medicare and you look at it from a Blue Cross or United Healthcare and even though their negotiated rate they, they tell a discount. Like we have a 50% discount. And my question is of what, if you're being charged 500% of Medicare and it's a 50% discount, but I'm still the insurance company, or if I'm self-funded, I'm still paying 250% of Medicare. That's not a discount in my opinion. Yeah.
1: And like, uh, I was reading something, but Uh, just pick a drug here because it's privatized and, and, and that guy, Martin Scorsese or whatever the hell his name is that bought that pill for like eight bucks and started charging 800, which you can do in America kind of on that theme is there's things that sell in America for hundreds of dollars of, you know, a bottle or a pill, whatever. But in Canada, it's like 10 bucks. Yeah. Uh, Just speak a little bit to why it's 10 bucks in Canada and here. Is it just because the government subsidizing there or how can it be so much
0: cheaper, the same pill? Yeah. So I think just the amount of hands that that pill is passing between manufacturer to pharmacy benefit manager to, you know, it, it, there's just there's just so many layers there of people taking a cut of that pill yeah. from a financial perspective. Right. Whereas if it's coming from Canada, it, there's just there's just not those layers to be filled in my mind. And that's just America
1: being America. Yeah. yeah. There is a huge industry though. Uh, I've had a daughter that was born at 26 weeks that st- that spent four and a half months uh, in the hospital. And then I had a father, my father, when he was in the ICU for uh, a month. Um, so I've seen two medical bills come in that were uh, in the seven figures. And we sent both of them to these companies that basically like, I think they work on behalf of the insurance agents to basically fight the hospitals and yep. then they keep a cut or whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: That's Is that a pretty big growing industry is to hire the person to fight your bill? Yeah, especially if you're self-funded, right? Yeah. Because if I'm self-funded, I want to be paying, you know, obviously the bottom dollar of whatever service is out there. Yeah. And so the amount of abuse and fraud that goes into billing, Yeah. you know, um, just to give you an example, Blue Cross right now, they'll auto-adjudicate any bill North of hundred thousand dollars. Well, if I'm self-funded, I What's don't. What's that mean? So they're just going to cut a check for any any claim that comes through that's okay. less than a hundred thousand dollars, right? Okay. But if I'm self-funded, I I want, you know, I want to be taking a look at with a microscope of every cent that's going out my door, right? And so that's why we often look at third-party administrators that have a much lower auto education aspect of claims. So whether that's five thousand or ten thousand dollars, they're going to essentially cut a check for anything less than $5,000. And they're going to have a person review that claim for anything north of that 5000 whereas Blue Cross is doing it at 100000 So again, from a self-insured perspective, you're going to cut out a lot of that fraud and abuse from a billing perspective um, when you have more hands-on you know, approach to your auto-education of your claims. Yeah. I'd say that business, obviously, it's not slowing down by any means to answer your question. Okay. I, I Sometimes I
1: keep bouncing back to our earlier conversation. And I asked you, I said, if you're at a two to 50 and you do all the right things and you're super healthy, it doesn't really matter because you're lumped in with the group. If, if
0: you're fully insured. For yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. So my other question is, okay, let's say, you know, the three of us, me, you, and big Johnny over here are part of a company And we're part of a 40-person company. We're healthy as hell. And unfortunately, like two of our coworkers have something really bad happen to them that year and have huge bills. Yeah. Does that impact everybody's premium
0: the next year? Can like one employee like pull the whole group forward? If you're on a level funded or, you know, partially self-funded type plan, yeah, it will. I mean, I just went through a renewal right now. We were going through, you know... had a great claims year. I mean, they had a good surplus built up. It was looking phenomenal. Um, and this this employer had 42 people on the plan. We had uh, one individual um, have brain surgery, literally, I mean, it was about a month before that we started getting the renewal going and ended up being about a $450,000 claim. Well, insurance company is eating at least $320,000 based on the premiums that this company paid in. And so they started out with a 30% renewal. We ended up getting it down to 18, but everything was looking great until that one brain surgery, right? Yeah. And so unfortunately, companies can eat, you know, 12%, pass on 6% to their employees, but it is what it is, you know? And that was, that was the best that I tried to get, you know, quotes from all all the other carriers and everything else, change plan design. They don't, they they didn't want to, pass off any more plan design changes. So they, you know, give me your bottom dollar rate from the the insurance company. Yeah. And fortunately enough, it was a one-time surgery. Had that person had chemo or radiation or anything past that surgery, that 30% would have been 45 or 50. And who knows what, you know, we would have gotten from the other carriers at that point. All right. So if I'm a small business and when
1: typically if a small business is going to make a change in agents um, or brokers, they are going to interview possibly two or three groups around town to decide who they're going to go with. What questions should they be asking if they are interviewing different groups to help make the decision that they're picking the best option, uh, the best group to work with outside of just some personal relationship that, you know, you play
0: golf with the guy? Absolutely. Um, Initially, it's, you know, what services are you bringing to the table without having to cost me more money, right? So like, if you're a company that has 20 or more employees, you have to administer Cobra. So whether that's HR director doing that, or I have a third party administrator, that's going to cost me money. For example, at Higginbotham, we have an internal Cobra team. So we're not charging our employee or employer groups for that Cobra administration. So I would say, Yeah. What services do you bring that don't nickel and dime me would be another, uh, you know, flat out. And then at at what fee are you going to charge? So typically it's a per employee per month fee. And are you taking commission on top of that fee? Uh, We've seen, unfortunately, some folks set up a fee with a, a company and then they'll take commission on the you know dental vision, life and disability. And it's kind of a getting a fee plus, you know, some. And so I think I work 100% transparent. I just want to make sure I earn what our agreed upon amount is. Um, And so making sure you know and understand those fees involved. I think too, looking at it from a proactive perspective is like, what other ideas are you going to bring to the table outside of just your standard, you know, fully insured plan and here's your plan design and here's how, you know, upon renewal, you know, what other ideas can we, can we do to help, you know, mitigate some of these costs? what vendors are out there, making sure you have a full scope of, again, from a proactive perspective, what are you doing to help my employees make better decisions, advocate for them, hold their hand through any issues that they're going through? Because we all know no one likes dealing with health insurance. And it's a super personal thing when you have to, when you're going through claims, but no one, you know, the average Joe doesn't, ask the right questions to providers. They end up spending a lot more money. Unfortunately, providers ask for a lot of money up front. And that's part of our job too, is get some of that money back if if you, you as an individual overpaid. So it's, again, what are you going to be doing to help me, help my employees through those through those times in that process? Okay, now I'll flip the question. What does your dream client look like? Oh man. Besides pays on time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think somebody that, isn't afraid to roll their sleeves up and know and understand that there's a lot of work to be involved when if you really want a sustainable program in place. So I, I, I parallel it to, I work with a lot of oil and gas and construction accounts and they put so much emphasis on their safety programs, you know, and and they want to keep their modifier, their E-mod, below at one or below to, to keep contracts, right? That's how they're paying their bills. So they have such an emphasis on their safety program for that, so they can continue to keep their EMOD down. Well, what's an EMOD? So it's it's, and I'm not. This is a property casualty deal, and this not my specialty. But so uh, a modifier is like your work comp modifier. If if you have a lot of work comp claims, you're going to have a higher. It's they base it on one or you know one or below is great. Over one is not so great, and you can yeah, you're going to lose contracts if it's over one essentially so but the, again that the emphasis and time and attention that they put in on that is tremendous but work comp compared that work comp specifically compared to the coverage compared to health insurance is a fraction of the cost and so a perfect client for me is okay i know how much health insurance is costing me am i willing to really again roll my sleeves up and get really involved and think outside the box of what I'm traditionally doing or what other employers are doing. And if you are, then I'm I want to be there to vet as many things out with you as possible. And, you know, something I've been doing with a lot of my clients is direct contracts. So, you know, if you can set up a direct contract for all your imaging or surgeries with a provider system. So you're paying going back to percent of Medicare, if I'm paying 125% for all my images compared to 150% because I have a direct relationship and I'm steering employees there. And I do that because I'm incentivizing my employees. It's not gonna cost you anything to go get an MRI at this imaging center because we have a direct contract. Then that's the things that I like doing because I know for a fact, hey, I'm saving that employee money. They're gonna go get their images for free. That employer is paying a much less, you know, percent of what they would have been paying just through their insurance company. Uh, or that insurance contract. And then I'm I'm showing a lot of value in setting up those contracts on, you know, as just an individual agent working with that provider system and that employer to do that. And so just like quick, like
1: within a, I'm, I'm under 50 person company. In order to be that client, you typically have somebody that is like dedicated and accountable to being the expert on what you do and working with you. Or is that a team
0: approach? Yeah, or? I mean, Customers that have 50 or less, then yeah, it's it's somebody that typically one person, um, yeah. but hopefully that one person just knows it's a phone call. It's right. not, it's an email, you know, there's yeah. not a lot that goes on there. Of, right. Hey, here's employee, call them. That, yeah. That's it. Because from a HIPAA perspective, it's tough because it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to dive in on a lot of that from a health perspective too with those employees, other than just to get them to where they need to be do you have any ideas for the
1: industry or is there any technology that could disrupt this in a in a meaningful way and and i mean that you know kind of prefacing that with you know if you look at even like venture capital and we're coming out of covid and where like lots of dollars are being spent going forward is like Health is finally making its way back into the picture is actually being this really important thing that people should pay attention to. Uh, tons of venture capital dollars. I mean, I'm wearing a whoop band here. I sleep on an eight sleep. We have all these different apps now, which should be making us healthier. But from your perspective, is there anything like interesting about the industry advancements that you're seeing? There are ideas that you have to make it
0: better that maybe aren't happening right now? I think the idea of how we can make things better more transparent from a cost perspective, there yeah. there's vendors out there, but and they're and they're getting better over time. But how are we able to get that in employees' hands and make that as user friendly as possible? Yeah, um, is I think there's going to be more and more come out from that, and then from an advocacy perspective too, is you know they're they're like I mentioned Quantum Health earlier, which is one of you know the better ones in the industry, um, but there's a there's a big price tag that comes with that. And so how can we streamline that down to the 40 you know 40 life group, right? Yeah. Uh, because a, a lot of those tools and resources are going to be for those larger employers, but it's it's figuring out how can we get those tools into smaller employers hands. Uh, I think I mean there's huge opportunity there. And one thing I've really noticed being in the industry 10 years now is we move at a snail's pace when it comes to technology. Yeah. I mean, I still have a ton of employers that process all their applications and everything paper, right? And they email me a paper form and say, here's, you know, Jane, she just got hired, like get her in the system kind of thing, right? And they're so adverse to having anything tech driven. And so as much as we can, you know, have all these great tools, if the employer is just not receptive to it, I don't want to lose a client because I'm, you know, pushing something that they're just, they're not going to be adaptive to. But if we can make that, that adaptation easier, then absolutely.
1: We kind of talked about healthcare reform, but are there just any political issues in healthcare
0: in the industry currently that keep you up at night? I think the idea of single payer system is always, you know, uh, something that's in the back of my head. Yeah. of What would that do to you? Uh, yeah, I'd, if you if you're taking applications, I'd probably come see if you're, <laughs> if I can come work for you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd I'd be pretty much out of a job I think, at that What is the point. single payer system? I mean, like Canada, right? Where the where, government runs yeah, everything. It's, it's going to be government ran, and um, there's no use for a broker or private insurance at that point, right? What are the odds of that really happening? Like in my lifetime, I don't know, or at least my career, I don't know. I think that's what the doom and gloom of Obamacare. That's why I think you know people that have been in the business for forty years thought that was. Whereas I looked at it as the government's mandating that people buy a widget and I sell that widget. So I'm not sure how that's a bad thing, I guess. But I think as, you know, we see the rising cost in healthcare, something has to be done, right? Whether that's employer driven or government driven, something has to be done to produce that. I mean, it's the steep curve of, you just look at the Kaiser family foundation, put out a study of inflation and workers earnings compared to premiums and deductibles. And it's just, you know, 40% difference there over the course of the last 10 years. And it's just not sustainable at all in my mind. It's not. And I like to think hopefully employers are going to be resilient enough to figure out ways to partner with the right partners to make it happen. Um, But I don't know, when you have provider groups out there charging these egregious amounts for services and the insurance companies paying it and essentially just having to, you know, get money back from premium. You know, year over year, and increase the premium to cover that. It's a tough system to be in right now. It seems like it's like there's
1: something that nobody's quite figured out. Because when I when I would see these bills where like a box of tissues was sixty bucks, it's like either a create a law that you can't do that, b be an insurance company that says you're not going to pay that. Or C, go start a hospital where you actually charge like five bucks for the deal. And maybe the answer is, well, you'll go out of business quick because all your competitors are charging 60. Or the answer is no, maybe more insurers would want to work with you and more people would want to go to you. But it seems like this is like a private market could be settled pretty quick. But there's
0: what am I missing that's like not making this so
1: obvious? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, to hit on your C. So in Oklahoma City, there's uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. And they, every surgery that they perform, you're going to know the dollar amount it's going to cost you right up front. Yeah. And, um, I think there's more and more of that happening, right? But yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally right. And and to me, that's, and that's the thing, like when go back to the buying a car perspective, you you know, exactly the dollar amount or relative good dollar amount of what that car is going to cost going into that transaction. You go, you mentioned your wife going to the hospital. We don't know what that's. Truly going to cost, right? Yeah. Which that's, th- there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Yeah. Especially with something as personal as well, something your wife went through, right? Well, and it's, and
1: it's, you're so vulnerable because once yeah. you're there, it's not like the, at the, at this point, it's, you know, we were talking about my wife going, the other day and it's not like you're going to get there and be like oh it costs that much never mind like i'm yeah. going home especially when you're like it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because some dumb you know not dumb insurance company but some right. insurance company is just going to pay whatever the bill is anyway it seems super obvious and the fact that it's not done so easily just seems like there's a huge opportunity there at the very least oh absolutely um so anybody that takes this podcast and starts something TJ and I get 10 percent deal. Uh, <laughs> all right. Just a few uh, personal ones. Yeah. Is there something that happened to you? I, I think I might know the answer happened to you growing up either an event or the way
0: you were raised or something that kind of formed like who you are today. You know, it's funny because I, I reflect a lot, obviously, on getting diagnosed with cancer at 17. Um, you know, that that was obviously a huge shaping event for me Um, just looking at the world and what I wanted out of it, what I wanted out of the relationship I had with people prior to that, you know, my dad left when I was eight, I was raised by a single parent, you know, my mom and my two sisters. And um, the idea of, you know, providing if I wanted to play baseball, you know, there's, Cause you're a badass athlete too, aren't you? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a big puff my chest out kind of guy, but I, I I could throw a baseball fairly hard back yeah. in the day. Um, <laughs> and but if I was gonna play, it was it was I need to go mow lawns so I could go play, you know. Yeah. And it was something that I recognized that really early, and I come to appreciate every aspect of that, you know. And um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was when I got diagnosed, and it, the world really shifted for me, and it's it's one of those things that. My wife, she often says, you know, TJ, not, not every day is rainbows and puppy dogs. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, dear, my, literally my (laughs) two feet are hitting the floor and there was eight months of my life where that didn't happen, you know, where I was in a wheelchair and, you know, I was going, I went from 210 pounds down to 130 pounds and, you know, four intestinal surgeries. Like there was a point in my life where it, it, I didn't know if the sun was going to come up for me. Yeah, And, um, and so I don't know. My, my whole thing is if I can live in a way that people can kind of look at and like, wow, that, there's something different about that guy or and get to know me for who I am and, and what I'm doing. I don't know. Then I want to continue doing that on a daily basis, whether that's, you know, CEO at Higginbotham, Rusty Reed or the guy at the gas station. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Shout out to Rusty. Do you have a morning routine? I do. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I get up at uh, 405. I go work out. Uh, gym doesn't open until 4:45, but I I need to knock the rust off. So yeah, I work out every five days a week. And then if I'm in town, I, I wanna I wanna be able to be with my kids as much as possible. I have a four year old and a two year old. Um, it's funny because I I looked at the, the amount of hours in a working day, and how much of that is I'm missing of their life, right? And so when I get off, I'm extremely intentional about. Being all in on the kids, so yeah. putting the phone away. Um, my routine at night, I'm bath and you know putting them to bed. Like that's that's my thing. And so that I mean, like yesterday, I, I had to go to Tulsa all day long. Well, I um, got up at two forty five because on Wednesday night I wanted to put the kids down. So I got up at two forty five a.m., drove to Tulsa, four hour drive, spent all day there. I was back by bedtime. Oh, you, you were know? yeah. So it's it, it's. It, if I can do it, if I'm if I'm physically able to do it, I'm going to make it happen. So, yeah, it's something that, and that's, you know, I think it goes back to childhood of, of you know, obviously yearning for that, you know, wanting that type of family. And um, if if I could outline my dream in life, it's literally I'm 34 and I'm making it happen right now. Like, I wanted a family. I'm, I own my house. Like, I have a car that gets me to work and back. Like, it's not doesn't need to be these great worldly things it's just the simple stuff that that i don't know i dig i love it man
1: i uh i don't wake up at four but i do take my daughter to school every day that i'm in town and i do bedtime bath somehow kind of got off my schedule i used to do bath and then my wife just we just kind of agreed that it it wasn't like an agreement it just kind of happened through osmosis i do bedtime she does bath. Nice. Um, But I like to start the day and end the day. So I love that. What is the best advice you've been given, maybe personally, maybe in business, like something that you think about? Mm. And then maybe you can answer the question two ways, maybe advice to you. And then I'm sure people that will listen to this might be folks that might come work for you one day or work in the business. Like what advice would you give to somebody starting in the industry?
0: Yeah. So I think, yeah, best advice. I don't know. I mean, again, going back to the rainbows and puppy dogs. Like it's, yeah. you know, it, life is it, it's interesting because it it you have these expectations of what you want out of it. And you know, literally every day is something new for you. And so I I have this philosophy that, you know, you make your own weather. Like I think at the end of the day when people don't have anything to say, they talk about the weather kind of thing. And so um, <laughs> you know, my thought is, well, hello, don't it doesn't matter if it's pouring outside, if my weather inside, my heart and my mind is sunny and 75 then life's good right it's awesome and so i think if you can maintain and and be reflective enough to do that day in and day out i think things are going to work out for you yeah um from a professional experience somebody working for me i think just challenge yourself of thinking outside the box like don't even though you have maybe a a hierarchy or boss like be autonomous and make sure you do whatever you think is going to be best for not only yourself but the company hundred percent and just full speed ahead. Yeah. Um, I think that's one thing i truly love and value about where I'm at is I maintain and manage my own business. Um, I go until somebody absolutely says no, and it's been 10 years, no one said no. And so, um, obviously if you have the right intentions and right things in mind, I don't know. I, I don't know how you can lose in that, in that mentality. All right, man. How can people find you or get in touch with you? Yeah. So I, It's funny. I put my business or my cell phone on my business card, uh, you know, and it's, it's our our service model is you call me, I'm going to call you back, email me. I'm email you back that day. Right. That's, that's a bare minimum of what we do, but obviously LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, um, I'm active. I I love how active you are on Twitter. It's it's funny because I've been trying to take an intentional look at how my industry can be like that. And I don't know, I don't know if I haven't found it or haven't connected to the right people on Twitter yet, but, um, It's a goal of mine within the next year. I think you should write some, I mean,
1: legitimately some threads on like how health insurance works, why it's the second most, uh, like that could make its way into the small business Twitter world so quickly, but we can chat about that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, All right. We'll put your, uh, we'll put your card in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to get in touch with, uh, TJ, you can find him in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with me today.
0: Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you having me. This was awesome. Yeah. Hey,
1: everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.